All right, yeah. So, like Mike said, going back into Luke 9 today, and I'm excited to preach this text. Um, one of the reasons is Jesus is starting to go closer to Jerusalem. Um, and as we kind of near that point where he goes to Jerusalem, we're nearing Easter, um, his death and his resurrection. As we near that point, we get closer to um, the seafood boil that Mike talked about. So I am excited to <laughs> get one Sunday closer to that and, uh, and uh, keep moving forward. So yeah, excited for that, but also excited for our text today. So we're going through the transfiguration of Jesus. And then we're also looking at a story of Jesus healing a boy with a demon um, that's possessed him. And so I um, have a lot to cover today. And so we're going to go ahead and look at the transfiguration first, go through there, and then look at the, the story of the boy with the, the demon-possessed boy that Jesus heals. And so we're going to start in Luke 9, 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with, with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And so that's the transfiguration. Um, and I think a good question for us to ask is, what does the transfiguration actually mean? And why is it in the Bible for us? I, think, I was thinking about this earlier in the week. If one of our youth kids came up to me and they're like, Caleb, you know, what is the transfiguration? Why is it in the Bible? I would probably be like, you need to go talk to Mike because I do not know <laughs> the answer to that question. I know some about it. I know Jesus, like his face was glowing. They're on the mountain. Moses and Elijah are there. So I kind of know the facts of the story, um, but I've never really been sure of what it actually means for us um, and why it's in the Bible. So I won't be sure where to start. So I think that's a good place for us to start today. What is the transfiguration, um, and why is it in the Bible? Why is it happening for us? Because this is really a unique story in the gospel narrative. Nowhere else do we really see Jesus with his face shining. Uh, nowhere else do we see Moses and Elijah appear. We see them referenced, but we don't see them appear. And, uh, and we see the, the voice of God come down in the cloud. So we have a, a lot of unique events that happen here in the transfiguration. Um, and it really has a deep significance for us as we're going to see. And so first question, what is the transfiguration? Uh, so the first thing that Luke tells us about it is that Jesus was praying. He took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. Um, and as we've talked about before, this is, this is typical for Jesus. Before a big event happens, he goes and he prays. Uh, and that's a good example for us to follow as well. Um, just a deep, a deep prayer with his father. And we remember that last week he was praying also. He was praying with Peter and the rest of his disciples, and that led to Peter confessing him as the Christ. So we have Jesus praying, Peter confessing him as the Christ, even though he didn't really know what that meant. 
um, when he confessed this, Jesus clarified that, yes, he is the Christ, but this means that he's going to go and die. He's going to die, and he's going to resurrect, and he asked the disciples to follow him in this path. You know, take up your cross and follow me. And so a harsh, a harsh call for his disciples, and it's really not what they would have expected from the Messiah. They expected Jesus to come, the Messiah to come, and bring in an earthly kingdom, um, just with, in power and might, and Jesus just said that he's going to go die. And so in our passage today, we again see Jesus praying, but this time instead of Peter confessing who, who Jesus is, we're going to see God revealing who Jesus is in all of his glory. And so we have a deeper revelation of who Christ is here. Because on, on this mountain, on the transfiguration, really what's happening is God is pulling back the curtain on Jesus and showing the true glory that belongs to him. That's why his face is radiating. That's why he's shining. Um, and in the same passage in Mark, Mark says that his clothes became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I thought that was like a funny way to describe it. Like no one on earth, like the best bleacher you know, can get these clothes this white. So he's using hyperbole here, he's saying, like, this is how, how bright, how radiant Jesus is. And so, and really, like, what, what we're getting at here is the glory that Jesus shared with God from eternity past. This is a glory that Jesus has had with God from all of eternity, and that he gave up to come to earth. Because uh, the disciples, they've only seen Jesus in his human appearance so far. Like, they just know him as, as a, fellow, a fellow human, I guess, right? They, they've seen him, they, they've lived with him. Uh, but here, Jesus, he takes it to a, complete, a completely new level. Like, they haven't seen anything like this before. Uh, because he didn't, he didn't give up his divinity when he became a man. He didn't, lay, like, he didn't set aside the fact that he, like, he was God. He still is God as he is on earth and as he is human. And so he's still divine. He's still, he's still God. Um, and, and, but he's taken on human flesh. It's almost like Undercover Boss, if you've seen that show. It's where, it's where a CEO or an owner of the company, they disguise themselves as a low-level employee for a week, and they work with the other employees, they get to know them, they get to know the job. And then at the end of the week, they reveal, like, hey, I'm the, I'm the CEO of the company. And then they either, like, promote them, sometimes fire them if they're a bad employee. Um, that's why you're always nice to people at your job. So you never know when you're on undercover boss. <laughs> so keep that, keep that in mind. Um, but this is way better than undercover bosses. It's way better. Because uh, instead of a CEO acting like an employee, we have the God of the universe actually becoming a man, actually taking on the lowest form, uh, a, a form that is so much lower than he is. Um, that's, why, that's why the theologians, I call it the humiliation of Christ. Think about the word humiliation. Like This is such a, a far reach down for Jesus to come um, and to take on this human form. And Jesus, like, he, like, really, we see him take on this human form. We see him experience humanity here. He's been hungry. He's been tempted. He's been living with the disciples for weeks now. And I can tell you from, like, living with guys the past five years that it's not always the most pleasant. And it really is, like, you're experiencing the, the, sometimes the depths of humanity, if you will. And Jesus, he's entered into it. Like, he's really entered into the full human experience. But now, Jesus, he's revealing himself as God to them. Like, this is like one of their roommates that they know saying, like, no, I'm actually God. Like, I'm fully God. He's not just another, not just another disciple. Like, he is God with them. He's their leader, he's their master, and he's God with them. And so he's revealing himself, and we see, we see him shine, and it, like, this points to the fact that the glory, it belongs to Christ. 
we see, we see his face shining. It's not like someone got a flashlight and put it on his face. Like, the glory belongs to Jesus here. If we think about the Old Testament, if we go to Exodus, Exodus 34, uh, Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai, uh, and God, God reveals his word to him. And as he's coming down, his face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. So God's glory is radiating onto the face of Moses. But the glory, it didn't belong to Moses. Like he, just, he was just shining because he was in the presence of God. But now we have Jesus going up on the mountain here, and his face is shining because he is God. It's not reflecting onto him. It belongs to him because he is God himself in all of his glory. And his, his glory is not just seen here in his appearance. Like we see him radiating. We see him shining. Um, it's also revealed through Moses and Elijah being there. That's a huge part of this story. Uh, and it must have been confusing for Peter, James, and John. Because uh, they're about to fall asleep. They wake up and they see Moses, Elijah, Jesus shining in all this glory. And this would be, it would have been like mind-boggling for them to see Moses and Elijah there especially. Because these are two of the like, greatest figures in the Old Testament like to them. Two like, just famous figures in their history. Uh, if, and, and they're standing here in glory. For us, like as Americans, it would be like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Like you, you like you're about to fall asleep, you wake up and you see George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in front of you, and you're like, "What's going on here? Uh, what, why is this happening?" So if we go to Israelite history, though, we see that Moses, like he's famous, he's well known in Israelite history because he's the one that received the Ten Commandments. He's the one that led the Israelites in the Exodus out of Egypt. He's the one that led them out of their slavery. We, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, so the Torah, the law that the Jews follow. Like Moses is this huge figure um, that the Jews, that the Jews know, that the Israelites know. And Elijah, he's also a really well-known figure too. He's this, this famous prophet of God. He calls out, he's, he calls out evil in the kingdom of Israel. He defeats the enemies of God, the false prophets of Baal. And so they're two great figures, and they're shining with Jesus and this glory. And if we also go back to the Old Testament, we see that this isn't the first time that Moses and Elijah have been on a mountain hearing God's voice. This is, this is Luke pointing back to those experiences for them. Both of them have been on a mountain hearing the voice of God. So on Mount Sinai, when Moses went up on the mountain, he heard the voice of God uh, where God gave him the law. He gave him the Ten Commandments to take back down to Israel. But then Elijah also went up on a mountain, Mount, Mount Horeb, and uh, spoke to Elijah, and he told Elijah, go appoint the new king of Israel. And so they have both heard the voice of God on a mountain. And now they're both back on a mountain hearing the voice of God. And notice what God says this time to them. He says, in reference to Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so God, he's raising Jesus up, even above these two figures of the Old Testament, even above these two great figures in Israelite history. Because Jesus, he's not just a servant of God, as Moses and Elijah were. God says, this is my son. God, and he, so he's, yeah, he's a son of God. And when Elijah was on the mountain, back in the Old Testament, God told him, go point this new king. But now God says, this is my chosen one. Jesus is my chosen one, and this is the king of my people now. So God's continually elevating Jesus up above um, everything in the Old Testament. And when Moses was on the mountain, God gave him his word to bring back, back down to the Israelites. Gave him the Ten Commandments, gave him his word. But when Jesus is on the mountain here, God says, listen to Jesus. He says, this is my word. Like, Jesus is the word of God. 
that he's revealing to his people. But then when the cloud of God's presence is lifted, Moses and Elijah are gone, and only Jesus is left. And so it's just this really great, great proclamation um, that Jesus, he's so far above everything um, in the Old Testament. And he's the fulfillment of everything that has been promised in the Old Testament. He's the word of God. He's the king that God has sent for his people. And so the glory of Jesus shines through um, these Old Testament figures being here. And listen to what God says. They simply need to listen to him. As he's speaking, he says, just listen to him. And so I think this is a helpful reminder for us that while Jesus, like, he took on the form of God, or he took on the form of man, he's still fully God. He still speaks with the full authority of God as everything that God has promised for his people. And I know that I can get uh, so caught up in the humanity of Jesus. I can, really, I can really just focus on the fact that Jesus understands me. Like, he knows what I'm going through. He knows my frustra- frustrations. He knows my sin. Um, and that's beautiful. And we, all, like, we really need that. We need to know that Jesus is with us in those moments, um, that he understands us, that he gets us. Um, but we also need to know that Jesus is our king. Like, he's our friend, that he knows us and he understands us. But he's still God, and he's still our king that rules over us. So we need, we need both sides. We need his humanity. We need his glorification. We need him as our divine king. Um, and this really, like, this is great news for us, that he doesn't only understand our problems, he actually rules over them as our king. He's a solution, too. He's trying, when he, does, he doesn't just sympathize with us um, in our suffering and our sin. He's triumphed over our sin as well, and he leads us through it. And so he call, and, and he calls us out of it as our king because he loves us, because he knows us. And so the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh um, just makes it so much more amazing that he, is, that he is our king, that he understands us, that he knows us. Um, and going back to the question, this is really what the transfiguration is. Jesus is showing the glory that belongs to him. This is Jesus revealing himself and all of his glory for the sake of his disciples, the glory that he shared from eternity past with his father. And it's also about where Jesus is from. If we look at just the glory of Jesus here, we know that this points to, this points to him dwelling with his father from eternity past the communion that he had with God. This is where Jesus is from. He's always lived and dwelt with him. And it's also, so this is where Jesus is from, but the transfiguration is also about where Jesus is going. So if you notice what Jesus is talking about here with Moses and Elijah, it says that they spoke of his departure. And the Greek word for departure here is actually exodus. So they spoke of his exodus that was supposed to be uh, accomplished at Jerusalem. I think there are two things that Luke really wants us to think about when he uses, the, uses this word, exodus. The first thing that comes to mind is in the Old Testament, like we kind of already talked about. Moses led the exodus of the Israelite people, led them out of their slavery from Egypt. And so we want to keep that in mind. Luke is making a comparison here of the exodus of the Old Testament, the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish. Um, but exodus, it also means death. It means literally to depart, to depart from life into death. And so what Luke is drawing out is that Jesus going to Jerusalem is leading a greater exodus for the people of God. Jesus, his death at, or in Jerusalem, what he's going to accomplish there is him leading God's people into a greater exodus, an exodus that's not characterized by being liberated from a physical slavery, but a spiritual one. Jesus is saying, you know, through my death, I'm going to liberate you from the sin that has such a hold on you, from the oppression that you have because of this fallen world. Jesus is saying that 
He's, the, he's leading a greater exodus for the people of God. And this is why Jesus has set aside his glory. We've talked about Jesus taking on the form of a human here. They're like This is why. Jesus has seen the suffering of the world. He's seen the sin that is in the world. And he lays aside his glory. He comes off of his throne. He conceals his glory for our sake. It's a rescue mission. He's coming to save us. That's why he sets aside his glory. He doesn't just come to live in humanity. He came to die for humanity. He came to die for us. And so that's, that's the what of the transfiguration. Is Jesus is revealing his glory um, that he's had from eternity past. It's pointing to his departure at Jerusalem. It's pointing towards the liberation, the freedom that he's bringing for God's people. But we still haven't really answered the question of why. Specifically, like, in this context, like, why is Jesus showing his disciples his glory right now? And I think we need to look at what Jesus just, just talked about last week, or talked about in the passage before. Because last week, Jesus is talking, he's saying, he's saying, I'm going to have to go, and I'm going to have to die. And he calls to the disciples, he says, take up your cross and follow me. And so, follow him where? To Jerusalem, to die. He's calling his disciples to come and to give their life for him, and to follow him, follow him in the suffering that he's about to go on. And so the disciples, they have, they have a really hard road ahead of them here. They're going to see Jesus betrayed. They're going to see him crucified. And they're, they're going to live the rest of their life just in persecution and suffering. And so they have a really hard road ahead of them. And what Jesus is showing them, them here is that his, their suffering isn't meaningless. Because they're, they're going to follow him in his suffering, but they're also going to follow him in his glory. Just as Jesus is going to the cross to die, he's also going to be resurrected and return to his Father in heaven. So Jesus, yeah, his departure, it doesn't, end, it doesn't end with him dying in Jerusalem. It ends with him returning to his Father, returning to the glory that he once had with him, that they will resurrect. And so the disciples, they're following him in the suffering, but they know that Jesus is waiting for them in heaven. They know that the glory that they've seen on this mountain, the glory that Jesus has, is awaiting them at the end of their life, that Jesus is going to call them back into glory, that their suffering it has purpose and it has, a, it has a goal of being with Jesus in glory. I think that's why Jesus shows them his glory at this point. It's for their hope. He's, he's showing them his glory to give them hope um, for what lies ahead. I think that's why the transfiguration is in the Bible for us, too. I think it's really meant to give us hope as well. And so we know that Jesus himself and all of his glory, he's the one that awaits us in heaven. He's the one that awaits us at the end of our life after all this suffering that, we're in, that we are enduring. Uh, think about the Exodus. Think about when the Israelites are freed from the slavery of Egypt. God doesn't, God doesn't lead them out of Egypt to just live in the wilderness forever. He leads them out of Egypt so that they can one day enter into the promised land. And that's, that's really what it means for us, too. Like, God hasn't just sent Jesus down to free us from our sin um, so that we can live in suffering the rest of our life. He sent Jesus down to liberate us and to one day return us to our promised land, to return us to God, to bring us to him in all of his glory. And that's the hope that we have as we are in this wilderness, uh, and as we are in this fallen world, that it's not, it's not all there is that Jesus and all of his glory awaits us. But it also begs the question, um, what do we do until then? As we are in the wilderness, as we are enduring suffering, as we are wrestling with our sin, like what do we do now as we await this future glory that Jesus has in store for us? 
I think we can go back to the disciples here and kind of and kind of look at them. This will be helpful because um, I can kind of I can relate to Peter in this story a little bit. One because I, I too sometimes struggle to stay awake um, during prayer, as Peter struggles here and the other disciples uh, struggle. Uh, but also, it's because of his reaction to seeing the glory of Jesus. He wa- he wants to put some tents up for them to stay. He says, "Let's let, let's put three tents up for uh, Moses, for Elijah, for Jesus, and let's have them stay here." Um, and I can, I can kind of understand that. You're up there, you're seeing the glory of Jesus, you're seeing two great figures of the Old Testament, and, G- and Peter's like, can we just enjoy this? Can we just stay up here um, in this moment right now? Um, but Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. He didn't, he didn't know what he was saying, um, because Peter didn't understand that Jesus, he had to go back down the mountain. He couldn't just stay there with him in his glory. Uh, he still had a mission to accomplish. He still had to go to Jerusalem still had to go to his departure um, for us. He's not, he's not going to leave us down here in the valley. Jesus, he still has a mission to accomplish. He still has work to do. Um, and so they go back down the mountain. And we'll finish with this story here in verse tw- verses 37 through 43. This is re- really where we see Jesus begin to accomplish his mission that he set out to do. So we have Luke 9, verses 37 through 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And so I think think Luke puts this story after the transfiguration on purpose. I I think he's drawing something out here. Because uh, the transfiguration, it's a literal, it's a mountaintop experience um, that the disciple, that Peter, James, John um, have had with Jesus. But now they have to come back down the mountain and, every, and they, have to, they have to enter back into the reality of a broken world. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you go to summer camp for a week and you're not even thinking about the outside world, like you're just having a great time with all of your friends. Uh, it's amazing, you're not thinking about what's going on back at home or at school. And then, you, and then you get back home, and you have to start school again, and your brothers are annoying you, and you're just like snap back to reality, um, you, and, and you enter back into the fallenness of, a, of the real world. Um, that's kind of what's going on here. They've been up on the mountain, now they're coming back to the real world, um, and it's bad. It's really bad, as we see. The, this boy um, that's possessed by the demon, if you just look at the language here, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, severe language. He's saying that the boy is convulsing, so he's, he's doubled over with pain. He's foaming at the mouth. The, the demon is shattering him, so it's bruising his entire body. So this is a clear picture of spiritual oppression. It's a clear picture of the effects of the fallen world, of the reign of sin. But we also get a clear picture of the mission that Jesus is on here. Jesus has come down to take care of this. Uh, he's, continuing, he's continuing his mission to free the oppressed. Like he's, he's beginning his journey towards Jerusalem where he's going to accomplish this fully to bring liberation to those who are under sin, those who are suffering. Uh, but the disciples, they're still a little behind here. 
Uh, they're still a little behind. If you remember in Luke 9-1, um, couple, a couple chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, Luke says that Jesus gave the disciples power and authority over all demons. So Jesus, like, he's given them this authority. He's given them this power. But now they're struggling. They're unable to cast this demon out of the boy. And uh, as Matthew makes it pretty clear in his gospel, they're unable to cast him out because of their lack of faith. We see Jesus, we see his frustration here um, with lack of faith. We see what's happening. And I hear, like, I think this is our answer to walking in this wilderness. Like, this is our answer to walking in the broken world until we reach glory. Uh, the answer is just walking by faith. Like, faith is what we need to have as we're, as we're enduring this suffering. Um, because we have like we're like we're kind of like the disciples. We have those mountaintop experiences too. We have those periods in our life where we feel really close to God. Like really, it really feels like we're just in His presence. Like we know that He's with us. And maybe that's maybe that's your baptism. Maybe it's when God delivered you from a lot of suffering, or maybe it's just a really good period in your life where you're enjoying God's presence. You you really feel His love. Uh, so we have those experiences, but we also have the the valley experience where that, that kind of fades, and it feels like you're alone in your suffering. Um, you come down from the mountain. You face the reality of a broken world. You have stress in your relationships. You're anxious about the future. Uh, you're anxious about your job. You just have all these worries, and it feels like you're alone in it. It feels like you're not in the mountain anymore. Uh, so we all, we, ha- we all have this experience. Um, but Jesus is saying, I'm still here. Jesus is saying, I'm still with you in these moments that he hasn't gone anywhere. The Jesus that was on the mountain in all of his glory is the same Jesus that is with you in the valley of all of your pain and all of your sin and your suffering. And the way that we get through this valley is trusting in him, trusting that he is with us in this and that he's our king, that he's leading us and sustaining us through this. Uh, that's, that's the answer, is just walking in faith, believing that he is with us, believing that he has the power to sustain us, to defeat our sin. Uh, because the truth is, Jesus, he, in, the, in these moments, he's still revealing his glory. Just as he's revealing his glory in the transfiguration, he's still revealing his glory to us in these moments. And we can see this in the text. If we look at the last couple of verses here, it says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And the word for majesty here, it means the glory of God. They're all astonished at God's glory here. And it's the same glory that Jesus had in the transfiguration when they were up on the mountain. They're astonished at this glory. And it's not shining through his face, but it's demonstrated in his actions in healing this boy. And so he's still revealing his glory by defeating the demon, by healing the boy, by returning him to his father. And so for us, he's still showing us his glory. He's defeated our sin by going to the cross for us, for dying. He's made made us whole again. He's made us whole in God. He's given us his spirit. And he's returned us to our Father. He's he's returned us to God, just as he did um, for this boy returning him to his Father. He's brought us to God. He's brought us into the family of God. And this is how he's shown his glory to us. And this is really what strengthens our faith through the Spirit. We're saying, like, we need to walk in faith. The way we walk in faith is by beholding the glory of Jesus as he reveals himself to us in the gospel. That's how we walk in faith, by continually going back to Jesus and seeing his glory. And the more we behold him, the more we look at this glory, the more we become like him, until one day we're finally, we're finally beholding him face to face. We finally made it. 
So I'll end, I'll end with these words from Paul, coming from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So simply behold the glory of Jesus. Trust that he's your Savior. Trust that he is your King. And rejoice. Rejoice because he's bringing you to glory with him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I just pray that uh, you help us to see your glory, um, that we, we rejoice in the fact that um, your son Jesus has set aside his glory, he's come, and he has died for us. I just pray that we walk in faith, knowing that Jesus is with us, knowing that he's our king that guides us. And uh, I just pray that you help us rejoice, that we will one day um, leave this world and all of its suffering um, and just behold the glory of Jesus face to face. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your grace that you give to us. Um, in your son's name I pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.